Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited to welcome to the show a multifaceted talent whose recent output has caught the attention of genre fans. He recently made his directorial debut with the festival favorite Where Monster Hides, and as an author, his novel The Afterliving brought vampire fiction to a new divine light. As an actor, you've seen him on such shows as Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, NCIS Los Angeles, and Strange Love. Please welcome to the show filmmaker, actor, and author Fernando Rivera. Hello. Welcome. So excited to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Uh, there's so much to dig into because you're doing so many things. You seem to wear a lot of different hats. I do. I wear a lot of hats at the end of the day. It gets so tiring, but it's like I can't go to bed without thinking about what I'm going to do the next day. So there's never really any kind of relaxation, which is good because my mind's constantly active. So it needs to be busy. No, it's good. And I think it's good to uh, diversify what you do, especially in the entertainment industry, because yeah. there's always new stories to explore and ways to tell them. So. And at the same time, there's always so many new things that you have to learn if you want to, you know, go beyond acting. You want to go into writing or directing like you have to know new software programs and you have to expand your network of people to be behind the camera, not just, you know, actors that you went to class with. And with self-publishing the book, it was like, oh, great. Now I got to learn how to self-publish a book like that's a lot of I love that you isolated software programs because I think that you know speaking as a screenwriter what the world at large doesn't realize is they think that like the industry would just sit down and a word processor and type things oh, out. oh yeah but we have to buy all this extra software to format it to screenplay so it can do this and blah 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 and each like each art has four different programs that all say the same thing and it's like well which one do I buy uh, which one's the industry standard which one meshes with how I think and that's part of the battle is you kind of have to learn a lot of the technical background that's nothing to do with creativity, but just what will keep me moving and not make me stop and have to look up on YouTube how to do this. Yeah, listen to all of these behind-the-scenes secrets, the headaches of the magic, listeners. Anyway, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, which is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why do you feel drawn to horror? Why do you think audiences gravitate towards horror? But why horror? Um, I mean, personally, horror has always meant family to me because because growing up, uh, my mother was an English teacher. And so um, she would show her students like when they had, you know, parties or breaks or whatever, she would show them like horror movies, which was very rare because it's not, you know, it can't really it's not really allowed nowadays. But back then, you know, rules were more lax. Right. Um, So naturally, she would show us her kids, you know, the horror movies that she would show her students. And um, then I found out that you know, my my mother's mother, my grandmother, she had like 13 kids. So whenever they wanted the kids to kind of be quiet, there were always there was a huge range of age. But one thing that they could all kind of agree on was watching horror movies. So they would do that so that the kids would be quiet and um, be occupied. So that's kind of how we were raised. It was just like, oh, like they'll be fascinated with this. Let's show them this. And so my brother and I grew up watching horror movies with my mom and we all loved it. And my dad is actually the only one in my family who doesn't like horror naturally um you know but he knows that it's a big bonding moment Mm -hmm. so whenever we say hey dad we're gonna go watch you know we're gonna go watch you know halloween he's like oh like i don't know how you guys can watch this movie but okay i'll come because he knows (laughs) he's gonna spend time with us right so that's like to me i always think about my family and growing up um horror when i think about horror and it's also a big holiday thing that we do like we there's always a horror movie on the holidays so usually we go to the movies um because we're all visiting back home and so we'll go on a holiday to watch a horror movie Uh, like this past christmas we saw um bird box 
and we binged through I, it was my second time watching but we binged through uh, the haunting of hill house because my family hadn't seen it and so you know it was just like us staying up to two two in the morning trying to get through all of it what i love about uh this question and one of you know your answer was making me think about just over the range of the episodes of dead for filth the reason i ask why horror is every creator who's come to the show has their own sort of entry point into the genre and even 70 plus episodes in there are new stories that show like there's no like one way to get involved and what yours your foundations are family the idea that family your family was drawn to horror in this sort of like universal connection with no matter Mm -hmm. like the age range or the interests everybody gravitated towards that because we don't all laugh at the same thing but we all get scared at the same thing so it's like a huge just like and that was that's also a I guess a more professional answer to your question about why horror is I think that horror is like a really amazing equalizer because a lot of people of different statuses, different backgrounds, whatever, they all get scared of the same thing pretty much. So, and that's what I even like about some horror movies um, where the bullies gets just as scared by the monster as, you know, the innocents. Right. And it's just like, Oh, they're kind of all sharing that same bond of being scared out of their mind. Um, And also, you know, like you can be, an award-winning director and make a horror movie and then you can be a nobody and make a horror movie and they both kind of have the same chance of being seen because it's such a huge all-encompassing genre yeah and i think that that's something that the draw for horror despite you know how the industry at large still sometimes treats it like a black sheep is there is this universal connection to are our base level fears, but also our need to experience them and push them out. There's a catharsis to watching these movies, mm-hmm. I think, that's really important. And I think that might be why we're all so obsessed with scary stuff. What well, feels good? Like, I feel I love being scared. You know, it's just like it's you go to the movies, you get this rush of adrenaline. And by the end of the movie, it's kind of just like slowly released from your body. And mm-hmm. it's just like a it's kind of like, you know, like a. Like a cleanse, like I think when you go, to, you know, it's a nice little, nice little uh, spiritual colonic, if you will. A cleanse of fright. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're saying that we all tend to be scared by the same thing, so that does beg the question: What scares you? Oh, I mean, if you want to get like just superficial, clowns. Clowns oh. freak me out. Like Clown House was one of my favorite movies, uh, you know, growing up, which doesn't really quite hold up now if you watch it now. But for for reasons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, A lot of reasons that like, you know, are taboo. Um, But just the idea of like three clowns following you home like that is freaky. Right. Um, And then, of course, it which, uh, you know, at the time I didn't realize it was like an NBC movie. Like I thought it was like in my memory, I thought it was oh, I went to theaters to see it. But like, no, like it was on TV. Um, So those really stuck with me. Um, And then but like as far as just something that an internal fear that I've never been able to, to shrug off is. Um, it's, I think it's called thalassophobia, where it's you have a fear of uh, like dark water, not dark water, but a fear of the ocean and the creatures. Because in- you can't see what's beneath you. Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm a great swimmer. That's, uh, you know, that's that's fine. But if I can't like touch the bottom or I can't see what's beneath my feet, I just I freak out. Like I just picture, you know, like a camera angle from below and just right. like, da, 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 and it's just that just terrifies me so all these like shark movies like yeah they're really you know not all of them are are the most high quality but just the idea of it just 
terrifies me. I'm fascinated by animal attack movies because it is a genre that never seems to waver, like a subgenre that never seems to waver within mm-hmm. the realm of horror. And I think it's because despite all of this uh stuff that we have built around our humanity and us being the evolved species on Earth, at the very core, we still have those predator-prey instincts. Mm -hmm. And there's that like fear that if you go swimming or you get lost in the woods, something's going to eat you. Jason. Jason will get you. Yeah. Like, he will. And if not, then the anaconda will. Like, that's just pretty much (laughs) hands down. And it's always going to be just as you're climbing the ladder to get onto the pier it's going to grab you like that's right that's the place where like i really book it when i'm coming out of water well because it's that it's that false sense of security you almost yeah, made it you're almost there and it's like every time i watch a movie i'm just like that's the hardest part for me to watch is when they're slowly climbing out of the water even if i know they're not they're like they're going to make it i'm just like oh it's terrible i can't <laughs> can we just cut to them being on the on the land i'm so fascinated uh by the way of the fear of clowns uh because there is something about that I think it, it's probably connected to we we associate clowns with childhood innocence, mm. but so by making it something scary, I don't know. I think like I've you know, I've heard I'm, I'm almost not going to say it's my idea. I think I've heard it's because you know like you never know what's hiding underneath a painted face, right? Um, which I don't know if that's the reason why they scare me, but but are you afraid of drag queens? I mean, sometimes. <laughs> Like I'm afraid of being picked on by drag queens because right. that's terrible. You can't hide from that shit. Right, a different, a different kind of terror. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, I thought I, I always wanted. To, I don't know if it's been done before, but I thought like it'd be really creepy to have like, like, like think of the movie Clown House, but instead it's like three drag queens. Three drag queens follow you home. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, and then they like they they shame you in the mirror or something. I don't know something crazy, but um, but yeah, uh, I guess the clowns is just. It's just because it, it, nothing can be that happy and that perfect. Right. So you know that there's something wrong. Like, you know, it's like the epitome of putting on a false face. So that's kind of where like my 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 fear comes. It's like when you meet people that are just they're so like you meet the perfect couple and right away the second they leave, you're like, something's going on there. Something's not right. Like, I don't believe that. And that's where, you know, clowns just put on this image of being perfect and happy and completely content with life. And whatever it throws their way, and you're like, no, that's not real. Like, there's something there. Oh, that's interesting. I like I, I like the idea that when something's too perfect, we automatically distrust it. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's that's my that's like I love to see flaws because I'm like, okay, good, I can work with flaws. But when I see perfection, I'm like, I don't know where to begin. So we've talked a little bit about things that you find scary clowns, uh, dark water, if you will, uh, and your love of, of horror movies that begins as a child because you're watching them with your family. Mm-hmm. Michael Myers in particular. He's my fave. Oh, yeah? He's, he's your yeah. your slasher icon? Uh, how do you beat Halloween, though? It's so good. It is. I mean, yeah. I and mean, then when you just realize like all the things behind it that they were just trying new things or just barely holding on by a string and it just looked perfectly executed, like that's... Awesome. So you're watching these movies as mm-hmm. you're growing up. They're a bonding experience with you and your family. Uh, but do you recall a point when you were engaging with entertainment and you thought, I want more than just to be a person watching this. I want to be involved in the making of this or I want to tell these kinds of stories. Was there a, a, a definitive shift in your life or was it just something that you always were drawn to? I mean, I got to be honest, I've always wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. So I've always liked the idea of, you know, being able to experience and portray emotions that I don't normally get to do in my everyday life. 
Um, but I never really saw myself as being a screenwriter. Uh, even now, I'm kind of like, I don't really know if I'm that much of a director um, because I'd rather, you know, be on the actor level right. versus watching, like, I guess, orchestrating it. Um, and the producing is hard and expensive. Uh, and even like the last thing that I said that I would ever do before I started writing my book was I will never write a book. Like that's the last thing that I said before I started. Um, so I think it, it's it's mainly because, you know, I've seen so many things done and like great ideas, but the execution has, hasn't always been what I expected. Right. And so I thought, well, maybe I can do it a little better. Like keep the same, you know, skeleton, but put on different um, different skin and see what it looks like. Um, yeah. So you were motivated to try these new things because as an actor, you were watching it and thought, okay, I had an idea of this in my mind and what was delivered wasn't necessarily what I pictured. So maybe I can make the thing that I picture. Yes. Um, and that was, well, that, that holds true with, with the book because, Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, one of my favorite shows was Vampire Diaries. You know, I loved it because it was just, you know, it's like a teen drama. And like, right. I just, I don't have enough drama in my life, so I want to watch it. Um, and so as an actor, you know, we used to have casting director workshops where you would pay to meet the casting director and they would have like an informational educational session and, you know, mock uh, auditions and stuff like that to get you ready for the real thing. And so, um, you know, I did six different workshops, CD workshops with the casting directors for Vampire Diaries because I wanted to get into it so badly. And you have to pay, mind you, you have to pay for these. Right. And I could never get an audition. And so finally I was just like, you know what? Like, screw it. I'm going to do my own, you know, story, my own, uh, I guess, movie and and I'm going to be in charge. And so I started writing um, a, a movie, essentially. And the movie was called The After Living. And by the end of it, though, I realized that I was about 120 pages in and I wasn't even halfway. Right. And I just thought, well, this is never going to be a movie. Like, this has to be something bigger. And so I just turned, you know, um, scene one into chapter one and I just went from there. And that's why, like, the book has more or less about 40 chapters because I was following, like, Blake Snyder's Save the Cat method of writing and which he has 40 note cards for 40 key scenes. And so that's why the book turned out to be about 40 chapters because I kind of just took each note card and turned it into a scene versus a chapter in a book. So when you started out writing The Afterliving, you, of course, as you said, you, you began it as a screenplay and then you realized, oh no, there's a book here. Mm. But then from that, the plan for many books springs out because it's the it's the first of a series and you're in the middle of writing book two right now, yes? Yes, yes. It's the first of a series and it's, it's crazy because at the very end, uh, when I was in the self-publishing process, you know, um, I had some friends who were beta readers and, you know, they read the book and and they were just telling me, um, you know, the way that I leave it is kind of a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, you can't just let this be the only one. Like you left it at a cliffhanger. Like people are going to expect to know what happens next. And so I thought, God, like it took me three years to write this. I don't (laughs) know if I can do three years intervals for writing books. So at the last minute I was like, okay. And so I didn't want the whole thing to be called like the after living, you right. know, I want, because I, the after living is about that specific point in that main character. His name is Manny. It's a specific point in, in Manny's life that he's experiencing what the after living is. And so I want him to experience other aspects of this world that, you know, he's just learning about. So I decided to make the after living book one of a series. And so then I thought, you know, a lot of the themes that are very important in the book are blood and silver. Um, and they have, you know, both symbolic and, and, uh, symbolic meaning and historical meaning for it. So then I thought, oh, okay, well then, you know, I thought about 
like blood and silver. Oh, I can just call it the blood and silver series. Right. So I looked, you know, of course I'm doing my research and I'm looking on Amazon and there already exists a blood and silver series and it's a, it's like an erotic fiction series. Ooh. So I was like, Oh shoot. Like I can't do that. <laughs> so one of my favorite books is, uh, or series of books is, uh, Philip Pullman's his dark materials, which is, you know, it, it has to do a lot with religion and faith and it's about, you know, um, this, I mean, this girl who tries to kill the institution that is God. Um, and it's called His Dark Materials. Right. So I thought, oh, well, maybe they just take that word. So that's why it's called His Blood and Silver series. Um, and so then after I had that, I was like, okay, then if I publish it this way, then I can, you know, save myself some wiggle room and I don't have to, you know, have a, a lot of books, but I can at least have two, you know, and keep going from there. So right now the plan is to have three to four, depending on how this one ends, with a, um, with a prequel. And so that's kind of what's going at, um, what's going through my head right now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm about halfway through uh, the second book. And for those who you know who don't know, um, the afterliving is essentially uh, it's book one of a fantasy series based on the idea that Jesus Christ was the first vampire. So that kind of just informs. There's a lot of religion and a lot of vampire mythology that are married together. Right. Uh, that kind of if you're a Dan Brown fan and you've read The Da Vinci Code. It's kind of that approach because there's there's a lot of religious history that is used to build the fictitious world. Um, so depending on who I'm talking to, um, if they're like a devout Christian, I'll say, well, yeah, it's like it's a conversion story, but you know, it's 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 uh, shrouded in vampire mythology. And if I'm talking to somebody who's a hardcore you know vampire fan, I'll be like, yeah, like it's it's a vampire story with like some Christian undertones. So it just depends on the audience. Well, uh, I do know that sometimes when you tread into these waters, especially mm-hmm. when you take liberty, uh, air quotes, with um, what some would perceive to be religious historical fact, yes. uh, that sometimes audience members maybe react strongly. Have you had any sort of backlash by, you know, saying that Jesus was the first vampire? I mean, I wish I did. Like, <laughs> I want those tweets so they can go to theafterliving.com and check it out or go on, you know, go on uh, Amazon and figure out, like, you know, what is the deal with this? Right. Um, but no, I mean, you know, the 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 book is still grass, grassroots enough to where, you know, it's it's slowly getting a small following, but in terms of, like, you know, massive... I guess attention from a major Christian audience. No, I mean right. I'm I'm from Texas. You know I have a lot of friends um, who grew up with a strong Christian or Catholic foundation, um, Catholic or Protestant foundation, and so like they really appreciate it because they know me and they know my creativity, and so right. they, you know they they take it for what it's worth, which is you know a a, a fiction story. Um, but no, I mean I've I've kind of been very interested in the idea of backlash because I in my head I'm just like what exactly do you have a problem with because. Right. I mean, this story was written with love. Like, yeah, you with did the not write this love. to push buttons. No, se. of course yeah. not. Yeah, which is why, you know, and, and the reason why I say that is because I had to do a lot of research, you know, to make the fiction seem slightly real in this world, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, there's no way that I would spend that much time on something I didn't care about. Absolutely. Uh, I do like the connection that you drew uh, to his dark materials because that's a book mm-hmm. series I'm very familiar with. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I think is is a, a very powerful thread in that series of books is the importance or lack thereof of faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a very different way, as you have been referencing, you tackle that utilizing vampires and, and these themes in your work. 
Why was it important to you to interweave uh, topics of faith in, into a vampire story? Because you can't really, you can't really tackle the idea of living forever without tackling mortality. And mortality, you know, depending on what your background is, has very different meanings for people. Right. Um, you know, for people of like a Christian faith, you know, mortality is something that is like a, a step in your whole existence. Um, whereas people who may not believe in the idea of an afterlife, you know, mortality is like the, the end point. So that's kind of, you know, and also because if you think about it, like if you take from the Bible, you know, um, Jesus said, eat of my body or eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, you will live forever. Right. It's like, I mean, that he essentially like just introduced the idea of a vampire himself. Right. You know, um, and so that's that's also where the foundation of the book came from was just that simple phrase at the Last Supper. Um, so, yeah. And, and also, like, I like to tell people, like, the languages that I speak are faith and family, mm-hmm. which is why a lot of the um, things that I create. Uh, have to do with faith or family because those are the things that I how I most I guess experienced the world it was always from like that lens you know because I'm very close to my family um, and you know being Catholic uh, Mexican Catholic it's you know your your religion is more of a cultural identifier than it is you know of a like spiritual identifier right because it's a very community thing and like you know with all of your friends you make communion and you go to ccd which is like our our version of sunday school i mean you should know you're italian i mean yeah, yeah i mean you're italian yeah you know um so it's like it's a it's it's a very all-encompassing thing like even if you're getting married you know even if the people getting married don't quite have or haven't quite followed all of the doctrine of the catholic church you still go through the motions because right. it's a big family event and this is what your family you know wants so that's where um i guess a lot of the influence comes from with the book um well, and something I wanted to talk about, and we we addressed it a little bit before we went on air, uh, you know, here on Dead for Filth, and when we talk about the intersection of queer identity and horror, one mm-hmm. of the things that comes up a lot is how uh, a lot of people are drawn to the genre because it represents otherness in a very powerful way, mm-hmm. in ways that uh, LGBTQIA people understand, because a lot of times we exist on the outside of, of society and we have to find our community. And I'm curious because community is such a powerful and important thing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a reconciling with those those kind of identities and those communities in your work for you at all? It was really hard because I, I mean, one of the main things that really bugs me is that when I watch horror, when I watch really anything on TV, you know, it's getting less, less and less of a problem now, mm-hmm. but you always have to excuse or explain having a gay character. Right. You know, they can't just be a character like they have to be a gay character who has gay problems, you know, versus being a character who has very, I guess, not normal problems, but very common problems who happens to be gay. And so, you know, thinking about that, like automatically, a lot of my friends were just like, wait, you're protagonist is straight and I said yes and they're like well how and I'm like I I don't know I really (laughs) I really don't know why but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I wanted you know I wanted it's it's there's a love story underneath you know the the whole I guess journey through the afterliving and to me it was very important that 
the I guess the the love interest was female mm-hmm. because it plays a huge historical significance in the entire story. And so that being said, it was like, well, crap, like I have to like he has to be straight. But at the same time, it's like I never thought, oh, I'm going to write a story about a straight person. Right. I just thought oh, I'm going to write a story about this person. And I never decided that the character was straight. It was just that's how all that's what was underneath the idea. Sure. But then that being said, I said, well, well, I can't just have, you know, I'm, I'm going to commit the ultimate sin and having a huge cast of, of straight characters. And so I thought, well, you know what? Like there are some other really influential characters in there and they're going to be gay because there has to be a balance there. Right. Um, and of course, one of the great things is that, you know, the main character is the one who's just like, oh, you're you're gay. And everybody else is just like, well, like, yeah, is that a, is that a problem? Right. So it's it's kind of, I guess, poking fun at itself um, because the ones who end up being, I guess, the, the gay character are actually very strong. And um, you find out that they're actually more accepting um, and there are some taboo relationships in the book and the taboo relationships have nothing to do with sexuality, but more of, of like belief systems. Right. Um, which, of course, is a lot common now, too. Well, and that kind of begs the question, like you said, how we view mortality is also the lens by which we look at life. Mm-hmm. And if there is immortality, the people who now have, for faith based reasons, issues with sexual orientation, there's. What's what's the argument there? Because there's no afterlife judgment, if that makes sense. I don't know. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and also like if you want to split hairs and go into like the Bible or whatever, it's like it's it's very like in terms of what's being what's said about homosexuality. Like if you want to look at you know who the end all be all or the the final word on, on homosexuality, you would say, oh, well, what did Jesus say? Right. And it's like, well, he didn't say much. Well, I was just like to point out there are way more rules for heterosexual people in the Bible. Than true, for true. So who needs more of a watchful eye? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're just living life in these carnal bodies. Exactly. Oh. Uh, I love uh, on your uh, personal webpage, you also refer to yourself as a vampire aficionado. And you should be because you wrote a book about it. I mean, yeah. But that always <laughs> begs the question uh, for me, because I'm a big fan of vampires and mm-hmm. vampire uh, fiction and films. Uh, what are some vampire? Beyond the Vampire Diaries, of course. What are some vampire stories and movies that like you love? What do you What do you really dig into? I mean, I gotta be honest. One of my favorite vampire movies um, <laughs> is Dracula Dead and Loving It, the Mel Brooks movie. Yes, the Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> because I saw that movie first, clearly, and right. then I went back and I saw you know Bram Stoker's Dracula, and right. it was just so hilarious how parallel a lot of the scenes were, and a lot of you know like like the comedy, of course. It's it's very different. Like you can put the same line in two different movies, and depending on what's around it, it'll be taken in a totally different way out right. of context. Um, so I really like that's one of the ones that just completely like it's my go-to vampire movie. I want to watch one. I would have never thought of that as an example, but something that does come up on the show a lot is how comedy and horror are basically kin in the way that like you shift a beat like a fraction of one oh, yeah. direction. You it can change everything. Well, it's like, like when you're scared to death, you start laughing right away. Exactly. It's just like they're very, you know, it's like a, a fine line between love and hate. It's just a very strong emotion depending on how you want to look at it. Uh. Dracula oh. dead <laughs> Yeah. But then um, I really did like, and of course this will also inform of the book, uh, it's not the greatest movie, but Dracula 2000. Oh, with... Uh, with Gerard Butler. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's based on the idea that Judas was the first vampire. And so that gets very close to, you know, um, not not really, I mean, the figure of Judas is in my book. Right. Um, but he definitely was not the first vampire. 
But yeah, but I like that because it was very closely linked to religion and, you know, it took it back to that place when he was having his own like struggles on the side, um, even though it wasn't the best executed movie. Um, and of course, The Lost Boys is just a classic because uh, it, it, it brings it more into a modern world and it's not so like the language and so archaic. And, you know, I, I that was one of the things that I really wanted to 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 touch on when writing is that. You know, they may be old, but they do have to evolve. And so they do right. like they have Wi-Fi, like they have cell phones, they have apps that, you know, that they use. Um, and I never saw True Blood, which is I've been told that, you know, I, I should be watching it. But I've, I I sometimes don't want to watch something that's too that could be too linked to what You're I'm doing. doing. Cause then it's like, oh, crap, did I have that idea or did I watch that on True Blood? Like I right. never know. Though what's interesting about all the examples that you cited as is, is ones and even True Blood, even though you haven't watched it, as ones that you were drawn to, Vampire Diaries included, maybe not Dracula Dead Moving It. All of these <laughs> uh portray, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula takes a spin of the Dracula story that is decidedly more involved in the romantic. Yeah. Uh, there are elements of seduction in Dracula 2000. In The Lost Boys, the idea that uh, Jason Patrick's character is being seduced into this coven by this girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the history of vampire fiction, there's always been this close unity to eroticism or seduction Mm -hmm. or just uh, maybe something that's more romantic than other monsters. And as someone who is a vampire aficionado, I'm wondering why do we think vampires are so sexy? What are your thoughts on that? I think there's the idea of, you know, we equate being young with being, you know, desirable. Mm -hmm. And of course, one thing that everybody knows about vampires is that they don't age. So there's that idea of being forever desirable. Um, so I, I, that, in my opinion, that plays into, you know, sex. And, right. um, you know, and, and if somebody who is dead uh, is used to being dead, for many people, sex makes you feel alive. It makes you feel like you're awakening things that you have, you know, you've neglected or that you've never experienced before. And so I think that, like, you know, in, in, in the terms of vampire fiction, sex is a way to make them feel alive and, and human again, because usually when they have sex, they have sex with a human. Right. It's not like they're, you know, like they're not having sex with each other. There's like this, this, uh, this enticement to want to, you know, I guess, bring somebody in from the other side. Right. Talk about playing with your food. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Whatever. Yeah. And that was and that was one thing that I wanted to stray away when writing the book, because you know, in a lot of stories, it comes, like you said, it comes down to a love interest. Right. And even though I have a love interest in the book, I, I had to make that very separate because in my own personal views, um, when I was thinking about writing uh, before I started the book is I thought, okay, well, what would be the thing that I would think about most when it came to, you know, becoming a vampire? Um, and in the book, they're called disciples. They are disciples of the afterliving. So, you know, if, if I were to become a disciple, I, I thought, well, you know, it, it wouldn't be like, oh, is, is you know, is my boyfriend going to be a vampire too? Like, can we be, you know, vampires together forever? Right. Um, my main thing being a Catholic and being raised with that Mexican Catholic guilt was, am I going to go to hell? Like, am I going to go to hell if I become a vampire and then I get slayed and it's like, oh, crap, like what's going to happen to me? Uh, I like that we're always concerned about a slayer because there's always a there's always a slayer. And uh. sometimes she's cute and blonde and sometimes she's not. Um, <laughs> but, 
you know, so then so then that's when I thought, well, why do they have to be mutually like why do they have to combat one another? Right. Like why why is it that if I choose this, I'm automatically going to hell? What would be the only way that if I chose this, I wouldn't go to hell? I thought, oh, well, if it was part of heaven. And so that's where the idea of Jesus being the vampire or the first vampire right. came from. Because it's like, oh, wait, this is a holy thing now. So now, like, that would make me really want to join. Um, but my main character uh, is an atheist. So it's like you clearly. You're just like t- tackling it all. I'm tackling it all. Well, let me tell you, because <laughs> I have dated a lot of atheists. And that's what really, I guess, m- really made me want to make the main character an atheist is because. You know, it's like I, there's always this just like like uh, I guess battle of wits. Like, oh, why do you think this? And right. you know, so um, I wanted to. I, I've heard enough of that side that it's like I wanted to, you know, do a little exercise and see. Oh, like you know, I, I want to see. Like, I know all the arguments that have been presented by people from my past. So now I want to embody those and see what would it take to get me to change my mind. Well, and that's an interesting approach coming from an actor's perspective, right? Because oh, yeah. looking at what you were saying that en- engaged you by the acting is the idea that you wanted to portray emotions or feelings or things that were maybe not what you were going through or were foreign to you outside of this character. And so to approach this book with that idea, this is not who I am, but I'm fascinated by this argument. Mm-hmm. How do I write this argument from the perspective of a character? You from my perspective, brought the skills from one of your lives into another. Yeah. And it was, you know, and I never really thought about that because it's like, I'm not talking. So if I'm not talking, I'm not right. acting. So it's like, I never think about, you know, the idea of, I guess, being method about, you know, writing a, a character, right. but yeah, it's, it's true. And, you know, I think also it was a way for me to, you know, let out a lot of my frustration with faith and a lot of, you know, things that like I don't fully believe in. Like, you know, I, of course, Catholicism, um, confession is a huge part of, you know, it's one of the sacraments or, right. um, you know, reconciliation. And but me personally, I've never really enjoyed it. Like, it's like, yeah, I'll do it because I'm supposed to. Like, it's written right. on a piece of paper. So I got to follow it. If you have it. something to confess, come on someone's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad you said come on someone's podcast because I did not. I thought you were going to leave out the word podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, you know, so I, I, I make sure to, you know, touch on that in in the book and, and all the things that I don't particularly like about Catholicism. Right. Um, the character doesn't like for sure. Um, and then times 10 because he's also being fueled by my my past interactions with other people who are completely on the opposite side of the spectrum when it comes to religion for me. Um, and even, you know, I went to a very Christian university. I went to Texas A&M. Um, university. And so that's like one of the most conservative schools, at least at the time in the nation. And, you know, there was, there were always these like groups that were, you know, kind of like evangelical groups in disguise that were just like, oh yeah, like come have pizza and like come have fun and and chit chat. And you get there and you're like, oh wait, why does everybody have a Bible? Like what's going on? And, you know, that's something that the character mentions like, oh, this reminds me of, you know, this club in, in college. And so there's, you know, a lot of that I was able to kind of exercise. Um, do all colleges have that? I just like had like I a, mean, mine a, a did. flashback. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not here for your trap pizza. I, yeah. But I I'll mean, take I'm, a box. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, thanks. <laughs> uh, no, I think there's so much uh, present in this work. And I love that you created a work of genre fiction that it once works as a vampire story, but works as a 
conversation about faith and community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that creating a layered work of art is no small task. And and it's so exciting to see what you're doing. I can't wait for book two. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I cannot wait to just like call up my editor and be like, hey, I'm ready to do this again. You ready? <laughs> She's going to be like, who's this? It'd be so long. Well, so let's shift gears a bit. We've talked a lot about the book and mm-hmm. in the series. Uh, but another project, an endeavor, and I mentioned this in the intro that you recently took on was you branched out to the world of directing. Yes. And you uh, wrote and directed, yes? Yes. Um, I had a lot of help uh, from my, my my DP because he is just, I mean, I was just so grateful he was willing to work with me right. because he's done a lot of really cool, um, you know, like horror, suspense, thriller type of things. Uh, so he was a huge, like, guiding, you know, post for me. Um, but yeah, go ahead. You were in uh, the the project where in question is mm. where monster hides. Yes, tell me about that. Um, where monster hides, uh, the seed was planted about. Um, I'm like, how old am I now? The seed was planted uh, probably about like maybe 20 years ago. Um, so where monster hides, it's about this uh, this young man who receives um, a book, a picture book that he made when he was a child. He receives it from his mom. Um, and you know, all the nostalgia floods back and as he's flipping through the pages, he realizes that, um, it looks very familiar. And so the, the book is called where monster hides Mm -hmm. and it's all about, um, how to find a monster hiding in the house. And so there's like a, a shadow monster that's hiding in all these places. And each place has like its own little fun rhyme to it that, you know, that he made up. And so as he's flipping through the book, he finds out that um, the pages that he drew match where he lives now. So he starts to get sucked into it and starts to check in his apartment all the places where Monster could be hiding. Um, And so there's like about probably, I think there's five pages that he flips through. So he checks all these places. And then at the very end, you know, Monster ends up finding him. So it's a very (laughs) like, it's a fun, it's a fun little thing. It, It took, you know, it took 12 hours to shoot. It was five pages. It took 12 hours to shoot. It ended up being eight minutes. Um, you know, we did like an original little scary jingle and um, it was very bare bones. Um, and, you know, it cost about like a thousand dollars to make, which I'm forever grateful for the people who worked with me because the majority of the money was spent on making sure everybody was well fed and, and the equipment. Right. You know, um, so but yeah, so the way that that idea even started was um way back when when i saw the shining you know there's this part in the movie where there's this uh there's like the woman slash ghost uh behind the shower right yeah i think her name is like debbie gilson or something i don't know i forget what what her name is but you know and it terrified me that there was like you know this beautiful woman and then just like turned into a monster and it was just like behind the shower curtain so i was always scared to check behind the shower curtain growing up and my brother being an older brother would always scare me and say oh the shower lady's going to get you the shower lady's going to get you so then when i was a child i made a little picture book called what's behind the shower curtain and it was like you know it was it wasn't like scary things it was like happy things so it was like my therapy essentially right. on how to you know, I guess overcome this like little fear. So then one day I'm in my, I'm in bed and I'm thinking like, oh yeah, whatever happened to that book? And then I thought, oh, what if it wasn't just the shower curtain? What if, you know, it was like more places that there could be something hiding? And so then the next day, that's when I, like I sat down, I wrote the short um, and it kind of just went, you know, from there. I love that you created a scary story out of something that was essentially childhood fear management. 
Yes. Also, how cool of a kid were you that you were like, uh, I am getting psyched out by this, so I'm going to create something. <laughs> Psych that, myself out. <laughs> that, that will like make me aware that good things can be behind the shower curtain. Yeah, a, I, I distinctly remember Santa Claus being behind the shower curtain, which is not that... I was As an adult, that might not be comforting, but as a kid, that was. I was just going to say, uh, I'm a little more terrified by the idea of Santa behind <laughs> yeah. the shower curtain than even Shower Lady. At the it time, it was different. It was different. <laughs> it were different times back then in the 90s. Oh, I love that. So how how was your experience directing? You spent all these times on sets, all this time on sets, and you've been acting and uh, for many different directors. We talked earlier about the idea of of taking something and cr- finally creating it for yourself. But now you've done it. What's that feel like? I mean, it's 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 kind of weird because I think like well, like that's what okay like that happened really fast it, it was all happening so fast because we right. had to get in and out I mean it was in my apartment mind you but it's like you know I had these people working for me out of the goodness of their heart and it's like I'm not going to keep them here for two days right so it was just really fast and one of those things where it was like okay can we fit this in the shot like can we get this angle like okay great then do it and I guess my main I guess response to everything that the DP would ask me was just like what angle is going to get the shot done right this one okay we're going with that one you know, and of course, it, it is hard to direct and be in something. I mean, I know, right. act, you know, actors and who do this like it's like it's nothing. And I me just doing this little five page project, that was really hard because it's like I want to see like I don't I don't have a stand in for myself. Like I want right. to see what it looks like. You know, I want to see what the angles are. Um, and I did a project after that where I co-directed with uh, co-directed and co-produced with um, one of my good friends. Oh, you know him, Matthew Bridges. Oh, yeah. Yes. And so um, we, you know, we, I'm glad that we shared in that because it was good for me to be able to see him mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever, whoever his scene partner was um, and direct that and then have that returned back to me. So that was more in my wheelhouse. I do want to attempt um, again, directing and being in something again. But for now, I very much enjoy the writing process. Um, and the producing is fun. It's like, it's like, right. you know, an OCD person's dream. It's project management. You know, it's pretty much what. Well, I noticed on your webpage, uh, speaking of pr- production, that you have your own production company. Uh, unofficially, yes. Yes. Um, it's yeah. So that's that's it's a, a play on my name, um, Fernando Media. Um, and yeah, essentially, when I start um, when more projects start coming out, you know, and we need the protection of the LLC, especially when dealing with a huge cast, right. um, I'm going to have to pull the trigger and, you know, do everything, I guess, officially through the state of California, because if <laughs> not, then things will get hairy. It does get a little tricky with that paperwork. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, what I like is that you have taken on all of these different roles and you seem to love it. I do. It's it's very, you know, any actor can, can kind of, I guess, uh, uh, sympathize with this but you know it's like when you can't be in the things that you want to be in it's like well then you have to make it and it's just you know I I wish I was the type of person that could pump out more content because I see a lot of my friends pumping out content like left and right and it's great but like I'm a very slow and methodical with things that I do Mm -hmm. so it's like I I don't have that um, I guess that push to want to you know, do the next thing you know, next week or whatever. Like I'd like, okay, like let's plan, let's get everything officially done. Let's like have, like we're gonna have an editor, we're gonna have color correcting. Like, so that's, that kind of holds me back and that being the perfectionist and wanting it, right. you know, like anything that I produce, I want it to be able to screen anywhere and not 
you know, have to accompany the film saying, oh, well, that day we had bad sound or, oh, right. well, that day there was a party next door. Like, I just want to be able to just kick back and let it speak for itself, which really worked with uh, with Where Monster Heights because um, I was only able to attend one of the festivals that we got into. Um, and we got into we got into several. We ended up winning four. We won four awards. Um, uh, one was Best Horror at the Discover Film Awards in London. The other one was um, uh, Best uh, National Short in South Texas. And then uh, we got Best Micro Horror at the Austin Revolution Film Festival. And then um, another Best Short over at um, uh, in, in Canada, one of the, the uh, Toronto film festivals. So there's one more in Los Angeles that we're in, the La Leaf. Um, so hoping we can get into that one because that would be the last one. But I was able to go to the to the Texas one. And it was really great to stand up there and, you know, there were other shorts that clearly had a, a huge production value. Right. And we got to talk a little bit about, you know, what we were doing. Um, of course, I plugged the book at the very end. But, you know, they asked about it and I just told them, like, the simple numbers. I'm like, yeah, guys, it was like five hours or five pages, turn it to eight minutes, 12 hours, a thousand bucks and a skeleton crew of, you know, like I, I had sound, a DP and a gaffer. And that was pretty much it. And then, you know, me and the voiceover, um, you know, mom and child. And they were just like blown away that that's what was behind it. And it was like, yeah, like it's, you know, I wish I would have had more. But again, at the end of the day, like I can step away from it. And I know that I don't have to, um, I guess, explain myself for things that didn't quite go the way that I wanted to. And of all the festivals that it played at, the one that you got to go to was Texas. And you're from Texas. Yes. Yes. How did that feel to... I that was felt really I felt really good because you know I don't have a lot of reasons to go to Texas where it's not my hometown or Houston right because my brother and my niece live in Houston so naturally I go there for holidays or I go to my hometown in South Texas or uh, my extended family is mm-hmm. um, so I don't really get to visit Austin or or Dallas or San Antonio right so it's nice to just go and to say that I'm going you know for business and not you know have to know that it's going to be accompanied by an extended you know exhausting trip to see all of my family. It was, it was cool. It was cool. I love my family, but they're exhausting. But it was cool. Well, and uh, from a celebrated festival run, uh, do I hear rumor that where Monster Hides could become a feature? I would say you do hear them. Um, yeah, I'm trying to. You know, I'm I'm trying to use because uh, usually people write a script and then they do a concept trailer or whatever. And usually that's like the harder part. Right. So I'm kind of excited to know that my concept trailer is is, is done. Right. Um, so I don't have to worry about that. So um, what I want to do is, of course, take, I guess, the main concept of, you know, the the book dictating this monster that now exists that didn't, you know, before the book was, was seen. Um, but I do want to incorporate a lot of, you know, uh, the culture that I come from, um, a lot of queer, uh, I guess, not undertones, but just a queer world that's not in your face. Right. Um, in a regular world. Um, and I do want to incorporate the idea of uh, the kukui, which in, you know, it's 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 called different things in like different uh, Latino or Hispanic cultures, but it's essentially the boogeyman. Um, and so, you know, I want to touch on bringing like the, the Latino audience in by bringing something familiar that they know, but then putting, you know, my spin on it, which is being introduced with the short film. Awesome. Um, yeah. Well, that I would love to see. That me sounds too. amazing. <laughs> it's like, I want to see that. I want to read my book. I want to do all that 
when they get done. Well, of all of these things that you're doing and working on, uh, before we head off into the night, I would like to ask you, we've referenced your acting quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do know that many of my audience members uh, would be quite mad if I didn't ask about your experience on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because we have a lot of... Uh, musical fans as well as Rachel Bloom fans out there in listener land. So tell me a little bit about that uh, because it seems like it was awesome. It was really awesome. I mean, I'll just say like from like from the actor auditioning point of view, you know, it's very rare that I get to audition for an average person. Like I usually, you know, and, and this is not saying anything about um, uh, just not saying anything overtly negative, but when you come in, you have a name like Fernando Rivera. Yeah. You know, it's like you automatically, okay, we know he's Latino. And so that being said, it's it's there's a different pool of opportunities that open up to you as a Latino actor mm-hmm. um, versus being a more ambiguous uh, actor with a more ambiguous name. So to me, it's always a huge plus when I get to just play like a regular average Joe dude that like doesn't, that his character is not dictated by his culture. Right. Um, and so that was, you know, a perfect example, you know, doing Crazy X. And I had actually auditioned for um, for the character of Beans back in uh, the first um, the first season. And I walked in and the casting director, which she's amazing, um, uh, Felicia Fasano, she saw me and she's like, oh, like you really look like uh, like Santino. And I was like, oh, no, because, you know, you never want to look like one of the main characters. And right. I had a very different look back then. So I was like, oh, crap. Um, so like nothing, you know, happened from that. And then, of course, three years later, you know, I go to audition for this character. And I mean, you know, I've I, I've watched the show as well. It's like, you know, White Josh is like such a cute character, <laughs> you know, like David Hall is they call him a chip hunk. I think they refer to him as a chip hunk in the show uh, at one point. Um, so I went in and I was like, oh, my God, like, this would be so awesome to just like play a gay character and then also play uh, opposite this character that, you know, I, I really love from the show. So then I got it and that was great. And I, you know, show up. And in the first scene that I'm in, um, you know, where my character is introduced, uh, uh, Val's character, she comes in and, and she tells, you know, um, White Josh, oh, like Rebecca's having a party, yada, yada. And then she turns to me and she says, oh, you can come too. You know, and it was like, oh, OK. But then like later on that day, b- um, back uh, behind the scenes or whatever, we're on a break. And she's like, yeah, my birthday is this weekend. You can come too. And it was like the like very parallel to her character. And like, which that's what you kind of find out is that like all the characters are so much like themselves, like they're very likable and they're very friendly and they're very open. And I had a chance to see them numerous times because there was a table read and then the actual filming day on set. And then, you know, I luckily got back for a second episode. So there was another table read and then filming on set um, and then the separate little events on the side. Like I went to the musical or the uh, the show at the Orpheum. Oh, I was there. One were of real... the nights. Yeah, I did actually. I saw you. You were on the balcony. Yeah, yeah. I saw you. You were uh, you're with Zach, and I was like, uh, but I was you know way far away. Um, so it was like really cool because they're all as genuine and fun and nice as they are you know on screen, and I'm very happy they got to like put closure to their series, even though all of us would have wished to have seen more and more. Yeah. Um, seasons. It's such a special show and it's one of those where uh, despite this being a queer horror show I, I see in my mentions all the time people talking about Crazy Ex-Girlfriends so mm-hmm. I know that we have like a lot of crossover and I think it's just people who love art that's unapologetically outrageous in a good way. So. Yeah and that's and that's and you know it's it's so like the show is so self-conscious like the yeah. songs are so self-conscious and you're you know like, they're like yeah this is a ridiculous song but 
you know, don't lie, you know you relate. And that's pretty much essentially everything. Now, looking through your filmography, you have made appearances on a lot of different shows. And I, you know, I singled out one, but do you have any other favorites of uh, TV or film that you've done that really stand out? I mean, um, getting my junk grabbed on Workaholics, that was pretty interesting because that was one of the ones where like I booked that you know over like the Easter break and my parents were visiting and I was like I don't want to tell you what I got but I got something fun <laughs> um you know and actually uh, that was the one that the majority of compliments I got were from like straight guys who were just like oh dude we saw you get your junk grab the workaholics that was great <laughs> I'm like thanks bro <laughs> um but also you know and I was telling you uh, earlier um I had a brief stint on um Jane the Virgin and again, a set with the most like nice and inviting people. Um, and even, you know, the creator of the show, Jenny Sander, I mean, she was just, you know, like average person just saying hello and embracing. And that was the first set that I had ever been on where um, where one of the leads actually approached me to say hello first and already knew my name. Um, so Gina Rodriguez saw me, you know, across, I guess, the 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 the, um, the stage and she was like, oh, are you Fernando? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah. She was oh, nice to meet you. Thanks for thanks for coming on. And I was like, oh, my God, like she, you know, she knew my name before I even tried to say hello or take a picture with her. That's great. Um, and also uh, Justin Baldoni was, you know, was really great, very much you know, akin to the bro humor. So that was a lot of fun to have. But yeah, really just nice people. Well, it's good to hear. And, you know, you bring en- good energy wherever you go. So it's nice to hear that it's being returned. Oh, so. yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, one thing I always like to ask guests, because we are committed to the world of film and all things spooky. Have you seen any movies recently uh, that you like that inspire you? What have you watched that you're into? Um, I mean, I really love The Haunting on Hill House like the haunting of hill house that was awesome beautifully done um there's a second season i believe yeah it's a brand new story from what i understand yes um i actually saw recently going back to horror and clowns i saw this movie that i did not think would be you know spectacular but i was actually really scared it's called the terrifier on netflix oh yeah that's relatively new with the clown with the white and black makeup yes yeah he's like scary it's and it was it, it it felt like it was made in like the 90s like you know late 80s 90s like it was very much stylistic but it was also just just creepy um i really <laughs> enjoyed it i saw it by myself with a bottle of wine on my couch tapping into that clown fear yeah like i love to scare the crap out of myself <laughs> um that was really really enjoyable so what are you working on next what can we uh, look forward from uh well yeah well i'm working on the second book um, and of course, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for something to click in the back of my head to see where I'm going to take the story for the, um, for the, the full feature of, of where monster hides. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple of shorts, one of them that I've done that has already been filmed. It's in post. We're still looking for, um, a, a, a graphic designer to, to help us with a few things. Um, but yeah, I have another short that I'm, I just have a, a list of shorts that I want to film and what, some either depend on getting a location, um, some depend on uh, a, a DP. So that's really, I'm just waiting to see which one, you know, comes next. And as far as acting things down the pipeline, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still, you know, open to the opportunities right now because pilot season's done. So right. a lot of the offers are done or accepted or going to be reshuffled. 
so episodic's going to be starting. So that's kind of where I am with that. But I really find a lot of my time being devoted to um, getting my story done because I just, you know, I, I, I want to start book three at some point. Well, I know I can't wait to read it when it's done. Yeah. And uh, it's on Audible now. So I recorded um, I recorded the audiobook and released it in December. So that is on Audible and on iTunes. And if you go to Amazon, the paperback and the ebook is up there too. So not only can people read it, but they can have you read it to them. Yes, they can have it read to them with a an American accent, a Scottish accent, British accent, um, and some German. <laughs> so there is, I did some dialect coaching because I wanted to not sound like a total idiot. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a fun, it's a fun ride for sure. Where can people find you? Um, you can find me. The most quick, immediate thing is everybody's on Instagram, right? Um, at Rivera Fernando C, um, or you can go to FernandoCRivera.com. Um, Twitter is the same handle as Instagram. Um, and if you want to find the book, just search "The After Living" on Amazon. Fernando, thank you so much for coming on. Today. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Please, listeners, check out "The After Living." Keep your eyes open for his Blood and Silver Volume Two when that comes out. Watch Fernando on all of the different shows he's on, many of which you can catch on streaming. Keep your eyes open for Where Monster Hides. And uh, yeah, just keep your eyes open for this amazing author, filmmaker, producer, actor, man about town. Tennis player. Tennis player. Renaissance man. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.